0: This is Women's History Month, and this is the story of the courageous but little-known American women who served in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade during the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 1939. The war was really a fascist effort to overthrow the newly elected Republican government of Spain and was engineered by Hitler, Mussolini, and other European fascist forces. Like the men of the Lincoln Brigade, these brave women also left their homes and families to save the Republic from fascism. Their courageous story and pictures appear in my book, The Lincoln Brigade, A Picture History. Anacuana's brother was swept up by the Spaniards for resisting leading forces against them. Her husband was also caught and deported to Spain for trial. Actually, he died when the ship sailing the stormy Atlantic was swamped. But she continued the resistance, bringing up her child and leading her people. And the point that I'm making there is that from the very beginning, black Indian men and women were fighting the resistance against the invasion from Europe. And they therefore stand as our first freedom fighters, and that's why their story is important. This is long before 1776 and the Declaration of Independence and Ben Franklin and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry saying liberty or death. These men and women, this mixture of indigenous people, people of African descent in the Americas, First made themselves free, and then they fought for liberty to make the Americas, their continent, free for them. And of course, I go along to detail the stories of men. By the way, I have many pictures, so a number of the things that I'm talking about today are illustrated in the book by the more than four dozen pictures that are in there. For example, pictures of marriages of blacks and Indians, a marriage ceremony. Even the children born to them, participation in resistance movements, for example, I get to the story of the Seminoles. Now, here are people that are down in Florida, and how did they get there? Well, the first people to really settle Florida in any large numbers were Africans who fled slavery in Georgia and the Carolinas. Headed not north on an underground railroad, they didn't know about that. They headed south into Florida because it was closer, and when the Creek nation split and the Seminole branch came south, they came into Florida and were welcomed by their African uh friends who were very happy to have them. Remember people of African descent, people of Native American descent saw no reason to face the well-equipped, powerful armies of Europe alone. They needed each other. They brought great gifts to each other, and they fought. And this took place to a very large extent in Florida. People formed a military and agricultural alliance that held the United States Army, Navy, and Marines at bay for 42 years. Now, as the U.S. sent in its armed forces against these armed Seminoles, what the Seminoles had to do that no army ordinarily has to do is move its own families, its women and children, out of harm's way. And for 42 years, as they held off the U.S. Army coming in after they purchased Florida in 1819, they held off (laughs) – Half of the U.S. Army in an operation that cost the U.S. Congress $40 million. And when I say $40 million, I mean not in our currency of today, but in 1830s and 1840s dollars. And they held off the Army, Navy, and Marines, and they ran circles around them. And at the same time, as they said, they had to guard their wives, their children, these soldiers. And one of the people that I stumbled on as I was doing this research who was very important to it was a woman named Rosa Fay, a black Indian, and she became the historian of this early period, trying to remember, write everything down, and carry the stories and the legends, the courage of her people, to future generations. And at a recent conference in 2008, 12 that uh <clears throat> uh welcome my uh, new edition of my book black indians i met rosa fay her granddaughter I'm, i i met uh, the granddaughter of rosa fay and she was still carrying on in that tradition her grandmother had just died but she was carrying on in that tradition and another woman that i stumbled on at this point was diane fletcher she joined the Kiowas, and I have a striking photograph of her standing in her Kiowa outfit, and uh, you know, very proudly asserting herself. I have engravings in California of Black Indian men and women going back to 1846, and by the way, I and I have those in color. Another important figure, woman figure, in this Black Indian history was a woman named Edmonia Lewis or Wildfire and she was born in New York State and grew up and became a sculptor, a very famous sculptor. Okay,
1: during before the period you talk before, about uh, Miss miss uh can, could you just um state how to identify these engravings if someone wants to order them. You know, so if you can say something, you know, slower I don't
0: know how to identify them. You said you weren't putting themselves, so I don't know where they are.
1: Well, you know, when you mention I have engravings, I think that's a cue to our listeners to say, Oh, I would like to see that. And oh, then, I see. You know,
0: but what do I you know tell what them? I mean?
1: You just say, You know, I have engravings of Anaconda or marriages, um, you know, and, you know, I call them. You know, just say I have engravings of Anaconda Um Natural, just
0: say I have engravings of them. Well,
1: just what you said. You were very natural the way you said it. But just be, you know, just um be more pronounced that you know that there are engravings for um Leslie or the, the listeners to oh, see, I see or what something. You, mean. you know. Yeah, well, so, it's good you so told that me to do. Okay. Right, so so when you you could back up, and uh, we could do it later on, and you just keep flowing with the next lady.
0: Yeah, let's but, do it later um, on. You'll tell me what I'm missing, and uh, okay. later on we'll add it,
1: okay? Okay, okay, but from this point on, when you say, oh, I have grave engraved, I have those pictures, and I have, not only do I have the pictures in the book, but I also have the engraving available. Um, see Leslie for more information, something like that. Okay. Uh, whatever you're comfortable saying, okay? Let okay. Let me get back on mute. Right. Okay. Go
0: ahead. Wildfire, Edmonia Lewis, became a famous sculptor, joined the abolitionist movement, and was very important. She even moved to Italy and had her own uh, studio there that many Europeans visited. Her sculpture was so important that it was even purchased back again in the United States as she lived out her life in Italy. Another woman that I talk about is a woman named Ellen Beck Goldsby, and she's the mother of a fellow named Cherokee Bill. Now, Cherokee Bill was a famous black Indian outlaw during the 1890s when there were a lot of outlaws out in the Indian Territory. There, The Indian Territory was being pushed and cut up for white people by the United States Congress and a lot of outlaws emerged to kind of fight that and to assert themselves. And Cherokee Bill went on a wild rampage. He was a bad, I think we would have to agree, he was a bad dude. He was an outlaw. He shot people without regard to race, color, or creed. So he's not the kind of fellow he'd want to sit down and have dinner with. And they couldn't catch him because he could travel through the Indian Territory since he was uh, part Cherokee, and he'd be taken in. It's something that his pursuers, the sheriffs and and, and the deputies, could not do. The other thing about Cherokee Billy is a terribly handsome fellow, so he ha- always had a lot of women that were willing to take him in. Now I mentioned his mother, Ellen Beck Goldsby, because when he was finally captured, and finally brought before a U.S. judge who sentenced him to death, by the way, and said, you are without a doubt one of the worst scorpions to cross my path here in this district court in Oklahoma. You are really one of the worst. He was put in a jail. But what happened? Sorry, Mom, I'm laughing. But his mother, Ellen Beck Goldsby, visited him, smuggled him in a gun, and he tried to break out even shot somebody before he was again recaptured put back in the jail and finally taken out for a hanging and by the way there was a small crowd there including his mother and when cherokee bill got out there he looked around at the crowd he said huh i wonder what they're here for looks like something's gonna happen and when the when the hangman Asked him, you know, you were asked this question, do you have any last words to say before we put the rope around your neck? Cherokee Bill, always cocky and brave to the end, said, I came here to die, not make a speech. And one of the other interesting characters that I have in the book, and also with excellent pictures, is a woman named Mary Fields, but known in history as Stagecoach Mary. Now, stagecoach Mary was a former slave, gets her freedom, heads west and gets out to cascade uh, Cascade, Montana. And there she starts working for a Catholic convent, and the Catholic convent is running a school that teaches and trains young Blackfeet women, and she takes part in that. She's another example of the black women that came out West and participated, not in fighting the Indians, but in helping them in various ways that they could. Another one that we see is Kitty Cloud. Kitty Cloud is a member of the Ute Nation. And she marries a black cowboy named John Taylor. And I have three excellent pictures of a marriage ceremony in the book. And the last one shows their child, Uterby, And Uterby lived for a long time into the our century and became the historian and scholar of the Ute Nation. Now, the last person I wanted to tell you about that's really important in this black Indian story, is a woman named Lucy Gonzalez. Lucy Gonzalez was a mixture of African, indigenous American, and Hispanic. And she was born in Texas around 1854. And she was a slave in that she was born to enslaved parents. She was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation And she never forgot her enslavement. It taught her a lesson. You have to fight for your rights. We don't know quite how, but somehow she told us she saw the Ku Klux Klan in operation. And she was part of the resistance to the Ku Klux Klan as they tried to shut down any rights for free black people after the Civil War. She even married a man named Albert Parsons who ran a newspaper out there in Texas called the Waco Spectator that took on the Klan. Albert Parsons was beaten a few times because he'd travel around in Texas campaigning for black politicians to get elected to office. And by the way, they were elected to office. In Texas, they're elected to the legislature. And in other states, they were elected to the legislature in 22 black congressmen were elected to the Congress of the United States in that period between 1868 and 1900. And to get back to Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, she goes on because she and her husband, Albert, are chased out of Texas. Matter of fact, Texas won't even recognize the fact that they married each other because they're an interracial couple by Texas racist laws. They move to Chicago, and they arrive in Chicago in the 1880s just as trade unions are really being formed in large numbers, particularly by immigrants coming into the country. And both Lucy and Albert live in this movement, and they become advocates for trade unions. They help form them, Lucy works with women workers. Albert works with others. He becomes a very important figure in that movement. And uh, <clears throat> they're pushing the first eight-hour day at that time. There was no eight-hour day in 1886, when on May 1st, 1886, Lucy and Albert, and they now have two young children, stepped in the line of march there in Chicago's Michigan Avenue and led the first May Day parade. May Day, of course, became an international holiday spreading out from Lucy and Albert in Chicago to New York and then across oceans to England and all over the world. May Day became the first great workers' holiday in the world. As I said, it was originally to dramatize the fact that workers were oppressed and had to work 10, 14-hour shifts sometimes. Steel workers had to work that long, coal miners. And May Day became an international holiday taken up by radical parties in Europe and in the United States. Uh, It certainly celebrated... In uh, in Russia and other places like that, that once had communist governments, it's celebrated. Uh, it's celebrated in France, England, all over Europe, and so on. And uh, you, uh, Paul Robeson, Paul Robeson, of course, became a as he grew up, and became a famous actor, and political figure, spoke up for May Day and participated in May Day celebrations. Sometimes sang for them. It was his way of expressing his solidarity, not only with all African-Americans and Africans, but with all workers, all oppressed people, just as Lucy Parsons and Albert Parsons did. Now, when Albert Parsons was arrested and charged with the crime that became the Haymarket Riot, of which he was innocent, he was arrested with seven other immigrant workers and Albert and three others were executed, the others given long prison terms, Lucy Parsons never stopped, never slowed down. She continued her fight for workers' rights, and particularly the fight to bring workers' control of the government and the means of production about in the United States. She led marches, she led picket lines, she participated in demonstrations, She wrote pamphlets, she campaigned with unions, and in 1905, Lucy Gonzalez Parsons was invited to sit at the first meeting of the Industrial Workers of the World, the most radical union this country ever had, and there she was on the stage with the famous socialist Eugene Victor Debs and others. And an honored place, and by the way, she was one of very few women who participated among the two hundred delegates. But she spoke on three different occasions, and on one occasion she stood up and she said, "Fellow workers, that what we must do the next time we go out on strike is not go out on strike, but stay in on strike." Tie up the means of production so the bosses have to give in to us. Now, if you haven't recognized that, let me point out that this is in 1905. This is before Martin Luther King and the anti-war people talked about nonviolent resistance. This is before Mahatma Gandhi in India was arrested for developing this theory of nonviolent resistance to injustice and authoritarian rules and here's Lucy proposing the thing in 1905 to this group of radical workers well I could just tell you she uh, continued on and on she lived until 1942 was invited to give speeches in London and elsewhere in England to unions and workers organizations and uh, finally only died when a fire swept through her small home there in Chicago. And it's interesting to note that she was considered so dangerous that even in death, the FBI and the state authorities, police, swooped down, and before the embers of her house were hardly even put out in that fire, they gathered up all of her books and all of her writings, and they were never returned to her family or anybody else. The fight against, actually the fight for the eight-hour day, and the fight against oppression in the workplace, was based on the fact that after the Civil War, after emancipation, people like Lucy Parsons, and Albert Parsons, and people all over the world became disillusioned with the free labor system, the factory labor system. That's why they started off asking for the eight-hour day. By the way, the eight-hour day did not come to the United States for decades and decades after that. It only started to come in the 1930s and 40s. And that was because employers, although they were not slave owners and didn't see their workers as slaves, preferred a system that had them working in a bind that was as close to slavery as they could get because it maximized their profits. And, of course, children were swept up in this. Little children forced into factory work. As a matter of fact, the heads of some corporation said, this is good for them. It teaches them independence and how to earn a living. And, of course, what it did was it deprived them of school. And what many of the children did is they carried signs when they protested saying, we want school, not having to work in factories.
1: All right, Mr. Katz, um, let's give out your contact information and your last parting words.
0: Okay. Uh, My contact, uh, people can get to my material at williamlkatz.com. I have a whole slew of essays there, often accompanied by my pictures, which I'm very proud of and can read about my books, like such as Black Indians or the Black West or the Lincoln Brigade or other things. Uh, and I'm, you know, very happy to be on your program anytime because you're trying to spread the truth. And heaven knows we need that a lot.
1: You got that right. All right. So that is our show for tonight. And we will see you guys again, uh, hopefully, this Thursday night at 8 o'clock. Again, you can listen to our archives on iTunes at www.blackhistory.com. University